0: Welcome to the Popmatic Podcast. I'm William Chamberlain of Popular Materials Department, and today I have an interview with writer-director David Toohey. Mr. Toohey was the writer of Waterworld, G.I. Jane, and The Fugitive. He also wrote and directed Pitch Black, The Chronicles of Riddick, A Perfect Getaway, and The Arrival. The Arrival will be showing at the Downtown Public Library at 615 Church Street in the main auditorium on Saturday, January 8th, 2011, at 2 p.m. So on to the interview. First question, when I was looking over your filmography and the films you've written and directed, you seem to be drawn to science fiction, thriller, fantasy, adventure genre. I'm curious, what were your influences, or still are your influences? What movies, books, television shows influenced you? I would. I grew up in the
1: uh, '60s, really, and I watched a lot of the science fiction stuff growing up, which was, you know, sort of we were as children we were indiscriminate in what we watched. So there was a lot of like bad late late night horror shows that we would, you know, get together all the all the boys in my neighborhood and we'd watch the same you know dross together. But then when your tastes get a little more refined and you reach high school and college. I started to focus in on reading the classic science fiction from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And I think that set this, at least set my taste buds for the kinds of things that I'd be doing later on. Now, you know, I really enjoy science fiction. I enjoy reading it. I enjoy executing it. But it's really not the only thing I do, nor, nor the only thing I want to do. However, you know, once you become adept at something in the film business, that's where the Lord and Masters like to keep you, Right. And so if you've done one thing, if you start out doing that like I did, my first movie, my first directorial movie was The Arrival, they like to keep you there. I think I was fortunate enough at the time to also have The Fugitive under my belt as a writer. So that, you know, allowed me the luxury of going back and forth between, you know, writing an action picture and then maybe directing a smaller uh, science fiction thing, thing, something that may be a little more personal to me. You know, always a chore to get a a movie off the ground, but at least I had that sort of duplicity going for me, and and not everyone does. But still, to this day, it's the stuff like you know, 15 years later, what comes to me is you know maybe a straight action piece or something that is uh, edged with science fiction or fantasy, and it harks back to you know what what I began as. So very hard to break out of the mold Hollywood wants to cast you in.
0: The first script of yours that got made into a movie was Critters 2, which you co-wrote with Mick Garris. And I was just wondering, how did this writing gig come about? (laughs) And thanks for bringing it up because I keep trying to drop it off my
1: resume. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it was just that. It was just a writing gig. I think I had the first screenplay that I ever had, let's say, optioned or purchased was... Another one called Warlock, a very you know, kind of base horror movie. But the people at New Line Films had read that, pursued it, didn't get it. Somebody else did. And so they uh, asked me to rewrite a film that was about to go in production for them. It was my first paying gig, and it seemed like a mountain of money at the time. So so I took it. <laughs> I actually did one draft of the of the movie, and only one draft. And I was so new to the business I didn't realize that they would be wanting changes, which is sort of the, you know how Hollywood executives make their living these days by giving you notes and demanding more, more drafts. I didn't know that. I just thought that, okay, this is it. it's really good for what it was. And so you should go out and make it now. And so when they asked for changes, I really didn't, I really caught to that idea, so I just I kind of walked away from production. So I only did one draft, wound up with some credit. But you've got to start somewhere, and, and there it was.
0: Yeah, also, and that Russell Carpenter was the cinematographer he on was, that, who yeah. went on to do Titanic. You yeah. you got to start somewhere.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh, you, also, you mentioned this, uh, you wrote the cult movie, Warlock, and I was greatly impressed with the spells and the witchcraft within the movie. I'm curious, how much of this was research, or how much of this was just writer's imagination?
1: A lot of it was research. I do. I tend to do a lot of research, especially back in those days. And I was not that I was enamored of witchcraft myself. I wasn't, but I thought it was an interesting offshoot of speculative fiction, right? So I liked it for that, and I liked the whole arena. So you know, the whole idea of the uh, the, the barn flower you know, out in middle America somewhere, being a sort of strange pentagram and meeting the Mennonite out there some of whom, you know, are still believer in ancient things. And, and so I liked all that. And most of it did come from, how do we say, real lore. <laughs> and I sort of enjoyed steeping myself in that. And then occasionally I, I grace it with my own imagination. You know, we're n- nobody's ever saying these things are, are based in fact. So you can be, you can use your imagination.
0: But yeah, a lot of research went into Warlock for, for what's worth. You also conceived and wrote the screenplay to The Fugitive. The first question is, were you a fan of the television show?
1: Not an active fan, because being, uh, or when it first came out, I really wasn't aware of it. I think it predated me just a little bit. So, you know, strangely, how these things come up, I was on the set of Warlock, and the producer approached me, my first first original movie to get made, and the producer Arnold Copelson walked up to me and he started talking about this project he's got. He said he had two two old TV titles. I can't remember the other one, but this one was The Fugitive. And he said, so are you aware of it? Did you watch it? Do you know what it's about? I said, I've only seen it in reruns, but but I get it. It's, it's really Les Miserables. You know, it's Jean Valjean being pursued by Inspector Javert, and instead of Javert, it's Inspector Gerard. You know, so it's pretty much Les Misérables, innocent man wrongly accused, and all that kind of. Stuff. All those great classic themes. So yeah, it'd be something I was I'd be interested in, just on on that level. And I don't think they realized it was Les Misérables at the time until I told them, <laughs> because it sort of opened their eyes. Uh, so then I somehow acquired like all the episodes of The Fugitive. They hired me to to write it. So I watched a lot of those. I watched I think probably seventy episodes of maybe a hundred and something. And then I realized I was just sort of like. I didn't need to watch anymore, I got it. You know, <laughs> Here was a guy who could walk into in any community and help them solve their problems without necessarily solving his own while he's being in, pursued doggedly by this inspector. So I got it, I got it, I got it. <laughs> and so I didn't watch all episodes, but I watched a lot of the episodes in, until I was sort of punch drunk by them. But it was a good experience. Looking back on it, it was, it was a good outcome. However, the, the experience was a little tortuous. I think they hired me and fired me on two different occasions off that project, you know, such as the nature of Hollywood.
0: I know you wrote a script for Alien 3. Could you talk about the script you wrote, and did they ever give you an indication why it wasn't used? That was another curious one,
1: with not so good of of an outcome, only because my version was not made. I think they were having real problems at the time getting it off. They had tried it with a few other writers, they brought me in, liked the idea that I pitched. I wrote a screenplay, which was well-received. They said they wanted to make it, then they started to cast about for a director. I was actually instrumental in bringing on Vincent Ward at the time of Navigator fame, who was going to direct the movie. Uh, I was a, sort of a fan of his from afar, didn't know him, but I liked his movies. So was instrumental in bringing him aboard, was also instrumental in bringing Sigourney Weaver aboard, who was not going to do the movie at the time, but I sort of convinced her to do it. I I actually had written the first draft without Sigourney Weaver. New studio head comes in as I'm turning in my draft and says, it's a great screenplay, but I'm not going to make the movie without Sigourney Weaver. So suddenly I'm on a plane to New York, sitting down with Sigourney, telling her how I can customize one of the roles into a female and how that might include her. So she got on board with that. So it was all good and moving ahead, and then suddenly a new director comes aboard, Vincent, and wants to do his own take and work with his own writer, and they spin it off into something else entirely, Monks in Space, and that's where the project sort of comes off, the wheels come off the project, and you know, people don't know what, what movie they're making anymore. And so they wound up with an amalgam of kind of, kind of my screenplay. I can still see echoes uh, of my screenplay in there. But, you know, then you have these monks in space uh, in a lead factory. That's what you wound up with. It was another torturous process. You know, gre- glad that they could get Fincher, but be, it
0: would have been great if they could have given Fincher something better to work with in terms of a screenplay. I read once, I don't know... Any truth to this? But I read once you were going to direct a big screen version of The Demon with the Glass Hand, the mm-hmm. famous Outer Limits episode written by Harlan Ellison. Oh, yeah. Is there any truth to this and what happened to this movie?
1: Well, you know, it still raises its head occasionally. So a little backstory. I met Harlan because of the arrival. He actually saw it in the theaters and contacted me to tell me how much he enjoyed it and thought it was, to him, you know, one of the best five movies of that year, or whatever. So he was going on and on about it. So, you know, that we struck up a friendship. I went up to his strange and odd house in the Hollywood Hills, and we spent some time together, and he had told me that, you know, I knew of the classic stuff that he had written, including, you know, one of the greatest Star Trek episodes, Sitting on the Edge of Forever, and a couple of the more remembered Outer Limits episodes, including Soldier and Demon of the Glass Hand, and he happened to mention that he still owned the rights to those because he negotiated them from MGM at the time. He negotiated them back, so I said, "Okay, let's let's set it up," and we set it up at Dimension Films at the time as as a project. And I wrote a draft. I thought it was a strong draft, but the brothers Weinstein and I sort of had a falling out over a movie we did called Below. And I don't think they wanted to be in the David Tui business anymore. I don't think I wanted to work with them anymore, so we just sort of let it lie. And they're sort of wasted away. Occasionally, you know, I pick it up and show it to people, and some interest rekindles, but not enough to, you know, get the $50 million or so that I need to make it.
0: You wrote and directed uh, your first movie, Grand Tour, Disaster in Time, which is based on a novella vintage season by Henry Cutner and C.L. Moore. The novella has a bleak outcome, and your film version has an optimistic outcome. Could you discuss adapting a novella to the screen and, and the changes you made from novella to script? Yeah,
1: that was... It was a novella. I mean, really kind of a long, short story that I had I found in an anthology of science fiction called, I guess, the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. And that was one of those... I'm looking at it on the shelf right now. I still have it. And that was one of those... Um, sort of seminal pieces of fiction, a collection of all sorts, sorts of science fiction short stories that I had read in high school. And and I started to plunder that, and I actually optioned the rights myself for maybe $5,000 and just wrote a spec screenplay on that piece and actually found somebody who financed it for not much money, $6 million at the time. Actually, that was my first directed feature, even though it was, it was meant to be a feature to be released in the theaters. Didn't quite have enough push behind it. So it went to uh, like a Showtime and appeared on cable as a Showtime original movie. Though I think overseas it got released as a theatrical movie. But uh, I was really enamored of just the notion, the basic notion that the no- novella presented, which was time-traveling tourists who went from disaster to disaster, and they were disaster groupies in a way. So. I just really picked up the novella for the that premise and then yeah, you're right it does have a very bleak ending and I didn't want to do a bleak ending at the time I wanted to do something a little more heartfelt as it turns out anyway and that's what we have so so there's something more promising to I think I just wanted to balance out the grimness of the disasters with something a little more uplifting and And that's what we wound up with. It's a very nice little movie. You know, not many people have seen it. And, you know, the the effects are what they are and the budget is what it was. But it still has a a quiet
0: power to it, I think. Your movie, Pitch Black, and I'm just curious, how did you come to cast Vin Diesel? Mm. You know, I wasn't going to at first. I
1: saw his, you know, we went through a lot of name actors at the time. Vin was not a name at the time. And it wasn't happening, either because they weren't right for the role or they didn't want to do the role. So we got down to the place where, sorry, let's just cast the best available actor. And I saw this picture, like it's 8 by 10 And I said, you know, it's a great look for us. That guy looks like he's been in prison, you know, most of his life. And so I was excited. But then when Vin came in to read, I wasn't so excited only because he's not a great auditioner. He's an actor who likes to sort of live the role, inhabit the role, and, you know, grow into it slowly and quietly. And he's not so, you know, good just at at cold reading. So I wasn't that impressed. I wasn't going to cast him, but one of our producers said, you know, I've seen this guy's work in the short movies. You need to see it too, and and I really believe in this guy. And he actually convinced me, and, and glad that he did. You know, then stepped into the role very
0: nicely, I think. The visual effects supervisor, Peter Chang, whom you've worked with several times, I'm curious, how do you strike a balance? I'm always impressed you don't get carried away with the visual effects. and I'm just curious, how do you two work this out?
1: Well, it's not in terms of getting carried away. I mean, some people, I don't think Pitch Black probably did not. Some people would argue that Chronicles of Riddick certainly did But it's not really in the relationship of director and and supervisor to discuss how many visual effects are appropriate for the movie or whether you're going too far and and doing too much. It's really their job to really help you execute the visual effects, make them as photorealistically as possible given the budget. So they're just concerned with each shot, what are the parameters of each shot, what software we're going to use you know, whether we're going to use subsurface scatter, you know, here, or whether we're going to use, um, you, know, all, you know, all kinds of parameters. So they're really invested in making every shot work. They, and everybody actually, has a, a harder time sort of stepping back and asking the questions, is this shot necessary? And that, you know, if you're talking to a visual effects supervisor, every shot is necessary, <laughs> and he wishes he had more. So it's really up to the director and the producers to, to decide, you know, how many shots you really need to execute the story and make sure that you aren't going overboard.
0: Your director of photography on Pitch Black was David Egby, who was the DP on Mad Max. Yeah. Uh, the move, this movie, according to the audio commentary, was filmed not far from where Mad Max was filmed, and I was just curious, what was the advantage of having David Egby as your director of photography?
1: Well, we knew we were filming in Australia, if only because of, I think, the, the exchange rate at the time was favorable to uh, to the U.S. dollar, and we were looking for some place that would give us wide-open vistas, like 360 degrees of horizon, without being interrupted by by cities, interrupted by telephone poles or power lines or anything like that. And we found this kind of extraordinary place in the outback, the only town out there is an opal mining town called uh, Coober Pedy. And it gave us that kind of moonscape that we were looking for. So once we settled in on Australia, it makes sense to use a local cinematographer, a guy who knows not only the area but the crews as well. And so that quickly um, led us to David Egby. And, you know, yes, he did do Mad Max. He, he was used to working sort of fast and loose. And, you know, given our budget, we needed to, to work that way and knew the crews as well, knew who to go to, and he just became the logical choice, and we were glad to have him because he's a very tough little guy, sergeant-at-arms kind of guy and keeps everybody, keeps his crew moving. And, you know, still being a new director at the time, I, I kind of needed that.
0: In the Chronicles of Riddick, you worked with uh, Dame Judy Dench, and how did she adjust working on a science fiction film and dealing with the green screen?
1: Well... We only had the dame
0: for, you know, certain periods of time and certain days. So
1: we wish we could have filmed everything in chronological order, but we just couldn't. So I found myself with her. The first day of filming was, in fact, on a green screen stage where Peter Chang, visual effects supervisor, was, you know, started to put all these tracking markers on her face, was putting little green dots on her face. This is the very first day of filming. Not only that, I had her on an entirely green screen stage. So there was a lot of orientation <laughs> to be dealt with. I had to walk the sets with her, the actual the photo the the actual sets we had built. Had to walk her through those, give her a full orientation so she understood, you know, where she was in place and time because those green screen stages can become very disorienting for actors. I'm not sure she had done any green screen work up up until that time. So, very new to her the, but she was she was a gamer, and she she put up with the green dots on her face and the tracking
0: markers and all that kind of stuff. And
1: she was she was an, a very
0: nice presence on our set. Um, will there be any more adventures of the character of Riddick?
1: My next call, as soon as I hang up with you, is a financing call with the financiers to see how much money they can put together for what we are now calling Riddick. Just Riddick, the third installment of the Pitch Black series, yes.
0: In the audio commentary for Below, it stated that you filmed the big climatic scene in the 007 studio, and everyone sounded in awe of the place. So just what makes that studio so special?
1: Well, it's huge. This is at Pinewood Studios outside of London, and, you know, the fabled studios. That's obviously the greatest stages in the U.K., and it's a very strange it's very tall it's very long and it's kind of narrow because it was originally made for one of the 007 movies it was originally housed uh, i guess a full-size submarine set for one of the james bond movies and so (laughs) since i was doing a submarine movie in the uk in england we were actually pleased to sort of revisit that whole idea and concept and And put our submarine there. So we turned it into a water stage. We just built up walls, eight-foot walls within the studio, flooded it to give us a giant pool eight feet deep. And then we put our submarine, the exterior of our submarine, on on a motion platform, which was actually underwater, so that we could put actors, uh, you know, we could agitate the water, we could bring in the wind machines, we could bring in the storm machines, and make it look like they were lost in the middle of the Atlantic in in a... in a, in a listing on a listing submarine. So I did all the surface shots of actors running around the, the deck in the storm in the finale of Below. I did those in the Fable 007 soundstage. It's a it's a great place to be. Just the the echoes of the past, or, uh, you feel them.
0: I have to ask this question, or I'll probably get written up by my boss, Crystal Dean. She's a huge Zach Galifianakis fan. (laughs) And do you have one story about working with him on the movie Below?
1: I'll just say this about Zach. He was very new. He was very uncertain. He blew his lines often, and he was very nervous. And it was my job to, you know, just settle him down. Give him as much time as he thought he needed to get it right, and that even included reshooting one of his scenes toward the toward the end of production. Because I think the first time I got him on set, he was so nervous he just, you know, about remembering his lines. He really couldn't get around to acting. So toward the end of the shoot, I remember rebuilding a little set, a part of the set, and saying, "Okay, Zach, I'm not going to shoot the other actors, but I'm going to reshoot your side of the scene." And he was really grateful for that, and, and he did a much better job. Uh, the second time around. So he was very new, very green. He was just basically a, a stand comedian, and really just kind of starting that at the, at the time. Uh, and, of course, he blew, he's blown up since then.
0: You said in, in the movie below, Act 1 was moody, Act 2 was creepy, Act 3 is terrifying. How would you describe the three acts to a perfect getaway?
1: The first act
0: is kind of
1: beautiful and what's the right word let's see well let's say this first act is beautiful and it lights a slow fuse the second act has more jeopardy and the third act kind of explodes it explodes on you in ways you don't expect that's about it for
0: quick analysis and one more question, final question, it's about a perfect getaway. It's a lot of fun to watch, and I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't seen it, but first time you watch it, you get caught up in the movie, but I've watched it since then, it's been on cable. It's one of these that I like to watch second, third, fourth time. It's literally a screenwriting lesson, and the lead character is a screenwriter. Were you having fun with the craft of writing, or you were just trying to tell a good story? I was trying to do
1: both. Usually, I don't like a lot of film references in movies because they become self-conscious, right? And they can sort of take you out of the movie. Here, I thought it was justified only because that lead character at least says he is a screenwriter. that played by Steve Zong. And it seemed to all be justified because of that. And so, yes, I was having fun with it, with the red herrings that we put into movies. And it's telling you that you've basically got to figure out who the red herrings are. And I am telling you that you've got to basically figure out who the red herrings are in the movie and who the real heroes are and who the real anti-heroes are. And that's the fun of this movie. And I'm betting that you're not going to guess right. So, yes, it is self-conscious, than the, uh, more self-conscious than most of my movies. But, you know, I want to do something a little different with this one. And I wanted to just have, play fun and loose. And that's what that movie was for me.
0: I would like to thank David Toohey for taking the time to do the interview for us. If you'd like to hear more, please come to the Nashville Public Library on Saturday, January eighth, two 2011 at 2 p.m. at 615 Church Street in the main auditorium to see the arrival. David Toohey gives a brief recorded introduction before the movie, and it's free.